Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. There is a great deal of smoke hanging about the science and religion debate, the fog of an allegedly ancient war. But beneath the smoke, where exactly is the fire? So writes Nick Spencer, senior fellow at the think tank Theos in this week's Church Times, where he digs beneath some of the tired cliches about the science versus religion debate. Nick is the co-author, along with Hannah Waite, of a new report, Science and Religion, Moving Away from the Shallow End, published at theosthinktank.co.uk. I'm very pleased to be joined on the podcast this week by Nick to talk about it. Welcome back to the podcast, Nick. Thank you. It's nice to be here. First of all, can we just go back to the heyday of the, of the new atheist movement, which I'm sure you and I both remember well. And it was around the time that Theos was set up, I believe. And at the time you carried out some research then about how the British public views the science and religion debate. Can you tell us a bit about what you found then? Yeah, I mean, God's got a sense of humour, hasn't he? We were launched a month after The God Delusion was published, which gives you an indication of the kind of waters into which we were launched. And our first or maybe second little short public opinion poll we decided to put a couple of the more egregious new atheist quotes to the public to find out how violently they disagreed with them. More fool us. Um, one of the quotes was Dawkins' famous line about religion being like, faith being like a virus, like the smallpox virus, only harder to eradicate. And we thought, it's pretty extreme. People aren't going to agree with that. And to our horror, 42% of people agreed with that back in 2006. Um, now, in this more recent survey that will come on to talk about we thought we'd ask the same question again and the numbers have basically halved to 21 percent and they were lower amongst younger people it's still a bit too high for my liking but it's clearly drastically lower than it was 15 years ago yeah and so can you tell us about the the new report you've done this is more than 5,000 UK adults surveyed by YouGov so it's 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 a big sample size um what are some of the key findings you found well, it's a huge sample size, and it's important to pair it with the other aspect of the research, which was 100 in-depth interviews with leading experts, philosophers, public communicators, people like Brian Cox, Lord Martin Rees, Susan Greenfield, Adam Rutherford, people like that, where we really got beneath the surface of the debate. In a sense, the whole thing is predicated on the question of what do people actually talk about or disagree about when they're talking about science and religion. It's a subject that everybody seems to have an opinion on. Too few people investigate what science actually is and what religion actually is, or what at least people mean by it, because you can have vastly different views on the relationship between the two of them, depending on what your conception of science is and what religion is. So we joke that the whole project, which lasted, still going on really, three years, was just a very, very long, very expensive way of trying to define what two words mean and thereafter how two words relate to one another. And obviously, there's a great deal of nuance and sophistication in the expert interviews we did. It's very difficult to put that into a just flat, quantitative public opinion poll. But we put some elements of it into it just to kind of get to test the, the water of public opinion. Um, I, mean, I can ask about Generation Z. Obviously, these people who, when, when The God Delusion was published, they were probably possibly too young to remember it or for it to have made an impression on them. Are they much less new atheist, as it were, in their views of, of science and religion? So the short answer is yes. I mean, Generation Z, I think, goes all the way down to eight-year-olds. We didn't interview many eight-year-olds about science and religion. Um, it's all the survey was all adults. So the Generation Z in our survey would have been aged between 16 and 24. So pretty much all of them 
too young to remember that particular new atheist spasm. They are more positive. They are less hostile. I think one of the things reveals is that self-evidently that new atheist moment was a moral moment. It's a response to religious rights in the US and Islamic terrorism and the slow decay of secularism and that kind of thing. It was a moral spasm, as it were. But because so many of the leading figures were scientific figures, it came to be seen as, indeed it was couched as, a scientific attack. And therefore, the science and religion relationship, which has always had its moments in the past and actually had another moment at that time because that was when intelligent design was finding its way before the courts in the US, um, that was militarised, that was weaponized. You know the old media adage, first simplify, then exaggerate. Well, this was first simplify, then exaggerate, then weaponize, and you had a war. And when you have a war, people are forced into one side or another. So when we did a survey back in 2009 relating to the Darwin anniversary, we found that there were not a very high, but a higher number of evolution rejectors than you would have thought, less than the US, of course, but still quite high. But the temperature's come down. This isn't a war anymore. In fact, very clearly from the expert interviews we conducted, the majority of whom, the vast majority of whom were clear atheists and clearly not religious, there was a sense of, okay, I don't believe it, but it is possible to have an intelligent and constructive conversation about this. And that seems to be the atmosphere in which younger people are growing up in. And is there also a sense that it's possible to, even if you don't believe, to think that one can be a scientist and have religious beliefs, that that's not a complete oxymoron? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, it, that was only ever kind of the, the most extreme view, if you see what I mean. There weren't very many people, even in the heyday, who said, you can't do both, be a scientist and be religious. There were some very prominent people who said that, but you know, you had to be quite hard up against the wall to, to genuinely believe that. Fewer people believe that now and fewer younger people believe that now. So that's just one example of a slightly more constructive conversation going on. You, you, write, you write in your Church Times article that one of the problems is that the terms science and religion are both are back, messy, baggy categories. Um, and when, you, when you drill down into the specifics, what do you find when, when people are asked about the compatibility of a specific religion and a specific branch of science, for example? Yeah, I say at one point this is more of a, a war of words than it is a war of worlds. I don't think it's a war at all, but bearing with that metaphor. You ask people, the British population, do you think there's a incompatibility or compatibility between science and religion? Broadly speaking, they're two to one in favour of incompatibility, which is not great for anybody who thinks there is broad harmony here. If you ask them what their view of the compatibility between science and Christianity is, or science and Islam is, they're a bit more compatible, not hugely more, but a bit more. Asking them what their view of the compatibility between religion and a specific science, like neuroscience or medical science or geology or chemistry or cosmology or whatever it is, and it's much, much less combative. The only exception there is the Big Bang, and even then it's only slightly on the incompatibility scale. Also, if you ask people their views on this, and then analyse it according to, their, say, their terminal level of science education or their level of science knowledge or their level of religion education, again, that take, seems to take the incompatibility and venom out of the relationship. So what it appears to be is that there is a kind of default option where you go to the, 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 the basic categories of science and religion, and if you don't think about them very deeply, you instinctively play to the base of incompatibility. 
But if you begin to think about them, if you begin to pull them apart, if you begin to learn more about science and religion, that incompatibility dissipates. I want to be very, very clear that doesn't mean that clever people really are sympathetic and silly people, stupid people aren't. It doesn't work like that. This is a broad cultural trend rather than the kind of law of physics. And we spoke to some highly intelligent, highly articulate, highly educated people who were clear about the incompatibility about science and religion. But nonetheless, I think I think the, the basic point there is that there's a cultural assumption which we just gravitate to if we don't think about. But the more we examine it, the more you begin to see, actually, it's not that simple and there is more going on and more positive stuff going on than you first assume. Where do you think people are getting most of their information about science from and indeed religion when they make these assessments about compatibility? Now, that's a really good question. There is increasing amount of research in the US which suggests that it's not where you would think. So your kind of instinctive answer to that is, oh, well, they get it from science lessons or they get it from David Attenborough on the telly. But actually, one of the things that's emerging in US research is that for the majority of people, or put it this way, there are two different discourses going on here. There's an expert level discourse that fixates on issues of epistemology or metaphysics. And then there's a popular level discourse that fixates on issues of ethics and politics. Most people engage with the science and religion debate not thinking about naturalism or thinking about scientific methodology, but through medical technology, through genetic modification, through the potential for AI, through end-of-life and start-of-life medical techniques, and in particular, in this instance, objections, brackets, often religious objections, to the use of those medical techniques. So actually, many people, I think, are engaging with the science and religion debate, but they're doing so, in the first instance, along ethical and political dimensions. And these two haven't been sufficiently recognised in the wider UK, at least, debate around science and religion. And I think that's one of the reasons why there is this default option, because you listen to the news and you say, scientists have managed to do this. And then the next item is, religious people have objected to that. And that frames the debate for you. That's really interesting. So it's it's less about necessarily the metaphysical claims that science or religion make. It's it's more about the the practical advances of one, and it seems to be held back by the other. Yes, I mean, I don't want to downplay the, the metaphysics. The the the, um, the the report, the the, the main report that we've written um, for the project, identifies six different dimensions, if you like, of the science and religion debate. And metaphysics is very, very important, as is epistemology, as is hermeneutics, as is anthropology, but also equally as important and arguably more important at a level of popular discourse is ethics and politics. And talking of popular discourse, I mean, do you think that the media bears any responsibility for how it reports these issues? Can, can it report it in too simplistic and, and binary a, a way? Um, you're, you're, you're kind of tempting me in now, aren't you? You're, you're inviting me to bite the hand that's currently feeding me. <laughs> um, inevitably, the answer is a, is a yes and no. You do get bad, egregious, simplistic, oppositional reporting and coverage, and you do get very good reporting and coverage like that. To be honest with you, uh, I don't think this debate is any less well served than other mainstream debates. In fact, if you compare it to political debates, we're having this conversation at least you know, 24 hours after a Daily Mail article about Angela Rayner's legs. So, um, you know, there are some areas of, of media discourse that are just 
way, way, way lower, lower than this one. I, I think sometimes it's um, the media's fault, but it's just sometimes maybe a bit easy to point the finger and say, ah, oh, you guys are to blame. I mean, what about the church, though? Because, I mean, I was listening to as a replay of um, Richard Dawkins' debate in Oxford 10 years ago with Rowan Williams when he was Archbishop of Canterbury. It was on the um, Premier Unbelievable podcast. And I was thinking, do we have leading religious figures or public intellectuals who are religious these days engaging in all those kinds of debates? Or, or is that something almost from a, a bygone era now? Or do those sort of debates take place in different ways, perhaps more on social media? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, there is a, uh, I know, a very live uh, Christian, indeed faith-based um, set of enterprises to one of the most equipping Christian leaders in an age of science. Um, our partner organisation in this, the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, are, are very kind of, uh, very good at um, doing a similar thing and um, informing the debate in a, in a thoughtful, educated way. I think there is a nervousness about this because... If you are going to venture onto what seems like other people's territory a lot of the time, you've got to be jolly confident in the way you're doing it. And there is a whole issue of authority that underlies this debate. And if you are going to engage in a science and religion debate, very often people feel as if, if you don't know the science, just don't go there. And very few people, at least very few people who know the, say, the theology and the philosophical background also know the science. There are some that do and are very happy to do so. And people will be familiar with Alistair McGrath and John Lennox and, of course, you know, Rowan Williams and the late John Polkinghorne and so on and so forth. So I think there's a nervousness there. But one of the points that really came across in the research is that actually the specific scientific debates that we assume are where the rubber hits the road here with this particular conversation, are actually more like flotsam and jetsam. They are floating on the surface of all these other issues. And so, as I say in the report, actually, your approach to epistemology, your approach to how you know what we know, what constitutes legitimate evidence, what are the processes for winnowing legitimate evidence, your approach to metaphysics, the extent to which you are an ontological naturalist or a metaphysical naturalist or a panpsychist or whatever else, your approach to hermeneutics, how you believe you should read allegedly authoritative texts, your answer to those questions pretty much decide already where you're going to stand in an evolution debate, for example, or a cosmological debate or a neuroscientific debate. There are lots of Details within those particular debates, specific details, de details that are specific to those debates. But actually, where you stand in the debate has pretty much already been decided by your engagement on all these other issues. I've seen you talked about how the numbers of the findings have changed in the last 16 years since your first survey. And there is more sympathy towards the place of religion and the compatibility of science and religion. Um, I mean, before we in the church get too excited about the sort of war in inverted commas being over are we right to be cautious oh yes i mean certainly you know one 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 survey does not a summer make really um i think that there there are two things worth saying here one there is the question of whether there genuinely is a war um i, I did a program on radio four a few years ago on the secret history of science and religion which looked at the history of the idea of war between science and religion and i've got a book 
coming out from One World next year called Magisteria, the, the Entangled Histories of, of Science and Religion, which tackles this question of whether there actually is a war. Um, for the most part, historically, there hasn't been. But that's different to whether there's a perception of whether there's a war or not, which, of course, you know, is often more important. And there are moments when this perceived conflict between science and religion erupts, often for quite other reasons. Now, we're not in one of those moments at the moment because, frankly, there are other things to worry about. But there is no guarantee that we might have another moment such as we enjoyed in heavily inverted commas in the 2000s. It often happens when, for example, in the US, there is a legal spat over teaching creation science or intelligent design. And there are some alleged examples of schools in the UK teaching creationism, and then all hell breaks loose. And it's not to say these aren't important issues, but sometimes we get them completely out of proportion, and then we escalate the whole thing into a war. We're not living in that time at the moment. And I think if that's the case, it does us a lot of good to have constructive conversations at a time when it is possible to have constructive conversations. You're also right in the Church Times, science and religion need, need not be a war, but it need not be peace either. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I've increasingly come to this view that, you know, figure A says science and religion are incompatible. You can't be a good scientist and be religious. And then figure B, naturally, who disagrees with that, says, oh, well, that's wrong. And automatically, figure B then starts defending a fully compatibilist position. Well, you can disagree with figure A without automatically saying, well, therefore, it's all harmony in the garden. And I do think this is important because... One of the things that came really clearly through our interviews with our experts is that science is an inherently conflictual process. Properly speaking, science is always in conflict with itself. Its success resides on the fact that it is always sceptical about its own conclusions and always doubting them. And it is that that has led to its success and progress over the centuries. Well, I think in that regard, we shouldn't be afraid of a little bit of tension, a little bit of conflict, a little bit of disagreement in the science and religion debate, apart from the fact that actually the joy of these conversations is having them rather than deciding on them and moving on. I think that everyone benefits from a little bit of tension, from a little bit of disagreement, from a little bit of antagonism, by means of which we move to securer but still contestable conclusions. And so I kind of um, advocate in the report strongly advocates the idea that arriving at unwarranted harmony is almost as problematic as, you know, artificial warfare. And as an aside, as the book I'm writing shows, by far and away, the biggest periods of tension in Christian history around this whole issue is when we have arrived at unwarranted harmony, 100 years after which the science has moved on, and the religion has been left a bit of a kind of an embittered widow, if I can put it that way. And just finally, you talk about a lot of the noise being in the shallow end, you know, adapting that that well-known phrase um, when it comes to science and religion. I mean, how, how can we foster, we in the church, foster deeper conversations? Now, that's a really good question. I think that if, if this doesn't sound too facetious, it's by having conversations. I think people really like talking about this stuff. I get the impression. Certainly the people we spoke to really like talking about it. We've had some people on, on Twitter just today saying, actually, this is one of the um, you know the, the highlights of, of, of my year. Admittedly, the year was 
lockdown and COVID. So the bar's quite low there. <laughs> but I really enjoy talking about this. People do enjoy talking about this. I think that means that's the positive sign that they don't, they've moved away from that kind of hostile rhetoric with which we started talking about. But I think there's also sometimes a concern that, you know, if you have this conversation with a believer, it's actually a bit of a shadow play, really, because they really want you to sign on the dotted line and argue for compatibility and then move on. And I can understand people's reluctance to do that because, you know, ask the frying pan into the fire, really. So I, I think difficult as it is, providing spaces where people can have these conversations and disagree and leave the conversation disagreeing with one another, but mutually enriched, as a rule, actually, I think across society, we need this. We need these spaces where you can disagree well, as my former colleague Elizabeth Oldville used to say many, many times. And I think science and religion is absolutely no exception to that. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.